we're going to have our main Bible reading now, which uh, we pick up Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 13, verse 1, and that's on page 576 in the Church Bibles. And we're going to read through to chapter 14, verse 27. Isaiah 13 verse 1 says this. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones. They have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger my proudly exalting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains, as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation, to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs and agony will seize them. There will be an anguish like a woman in labour. They will look aghast at one another, their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And like a hunted gazelle, or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I am sitting up the meads against them, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendour and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there, but wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostrich will dwell, and their wild oats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers, and jackals in the pleasant places. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. 
For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. And the peoples will take them and bring them to their place and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's hand as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. When the Lord has given you rest from the pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the instant fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows, that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. The cypresses rejoice at you. The cedars of Lebanon saying, Since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you, all who were leaders of the earth. It raises from their thrones all who were kings of the nations. All of them will answer and say to you, You too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sound of your harps, maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covers. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? Are the kings of the nations, all the kings of the nations, lie in glory, each in his own tomb? But you are cast out away from your grave, like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a dead body trampled underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial. Because you have destroyed your land, you have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never be named. Prepare slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, says the Lord, and I will make it a possession of the hedgehog, and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purpose, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back?
Well, do keep that open. We're going to be looking at that text together. Just to say as we start, there is an outline of where we're going in the service sheet. So do make use of that if that's helpful. And also at the end, there will be opportunity for any questions or comments. So you can bear that in mind as we go through. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is truthful, good and sovereign over us. And we pray, therefore, in our response to your word, that we would listen, trust and obey and therefore vindicate you as our God and as your people. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Pride comes before fall is a saying that is in common usage today. It might be used by, I don't know, an earnest parent seeking to instruct their ever-growing confident child to not be overly confident lest they come a cropper. Or in the context of the workplace, a colleague is becoming increasingly arrogant and cocky, but we pause to think pride comes before a fall and wait quietly to see what happens next. The saying finds its origins in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs. And it actually comes as part of a pair of Proverbs. It's well I read earlier, it's Proverbs uh, chapter 16, verses 18 and 19, which say this. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be a lowly spirit with the poor, and to divide the spoil with the proud. Well, a couple of observations at this point. One is that the book of Proverbs is, is actually, well, they're Proverbs in the context of a biblical worldview. They come in the context of God, who has made the world, who is the uncreated creator. In other words, their meaning is theological. Their meaning is tied to, well, whatever meaning we come to them, it needs to be grounded in an understanding of who God is and his world. Second observation at this early point relates to the fact that the proverb comes as part of a pair. It's not simply that the proud are brought low. There is another possibility, a better one, to be lowly in spirit with the poor. And therefore, if we're to properly understand the first part of the proverb, we'll need to bring to bear an understanding of the second part. You see, they come as a pair, and so they shed light on each other. Well, today's section in Isaiah is about the destruction of Babylon. And it's an interesting one because if you've been following the series, you might be surprised that Isaiah is talking about Babylon. For the threat to Israel at this point is Assyria. So for Isaiah to talk about the destruction of Assyria, well, that would be understandable. 
but not Babylon. And actually, at this point in history, Babylon isn't even a thing. Babylon will become a superpower, but at this point, it is not. So why is Isaiah talking about Babylon when they're not even a threat? Isaiah 14, so Isaiah 13, chapter 13, depicts the destruction of Babylon in very vivid terms. And there are three sort of stages. There's a, a progression of three stages. And let me show you some of the language, and then I'll make a few observations. So in verses 1 to 5, there is a hill, and a signal, a flag, is raised. And the signal of the flag is flown to muster an army. This army is described as God's army. That is, God, God is mustering this army against Babylon. Then there's the major stage from verses 6 to 18. And that is like the battle proper when Babylon and the people are destroyed. It begins with the realisation of their defeat and their courage melting away in fear. And then the onslaught happens and there is destruction. Now, the description of the destruction is very graphic and you might be a little perturbed by it. But when you stop and think about it, how do you describe the destruction of a city? You, you describe it in their day by an invading army that totally brings utter destruction. That's, that's how you get it across. It's a bit like today. How today would you describe the destruction of a nation? You, you say it, it gets nuked. Now, obviously, if you were to unpack that and describe the effects of a nuclear bomb going off on the people, then it quickly gets very graphic. But to focus on the graphicness would be to miss the point. The point being, they got nuked. There is nothing left. And here in Isaiah chapter 14, it's communicated by this utter defeat in battle. And then in the final section, in verses 19 to 22, it concludes with the fact that it is uninhabited. And do you notice that there's a description of all these animals? It's a little curious. But it's because there are no humans left in the land that it's now inhabited by animals. You can no longer hear the sound of bustling markets. Now all you can hear is the cry of the hyenas, vividly communicating the emptiness of the land because the nation is gone. Okay, that's the essence of the chapter. Now the reason why this has happened is because of Babylon's arrogance and pride. Have a look again at chapter 13, verse 11. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. 
I'll put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Because they're seeking to usurp God, because he is the creator, they will fall, be brought low, laid waste. The pride of Babylon isn't just pride over men, but theological pride in its relation to God. But that isn't the only reason. For the next chapter begins with the implication of Babylon's fall for Israel. Because Babylon's fall means the release of oppression for Israel. The defeat of their enemies means their release from captivity. In other words, it's not simply Babylon's fall because of their pride, but also it has the effects that those whom they have oppressed can be restored. All of this is then poetically put in the form of a taunt that Israel are to sing. And again, this might sound slightly foreign to our ears. You know, we think of taunt, you know, to taunt somebody is a bad thing. You know, it's aggravating behaviour. It's aggravating someone to retaliate. You know, trying to push someone's buttons. But here the taunt is functioning in a slightly different uh, way. It's precisely because Babylon has been destroyed that Israel can make this taunt. I mean, obviously, you don't taunt your oppressor unless, well, if you do, you're asking for trouble. The point is that they are no longer oppressed. So that this taunt becomes a poetic way of expressing the fact that they have been released. A poetic way of getting across of this change of status quo. Now the taunt comes in four stanzas. I want to say four verses, but that's just confusing because we already have verse numbers. But sort of four sections to this taunt. And again, let me orientate you briefly so you can get a feel of what's going on. So the first stanza in verses 4 to 8 of chapter 14 is an expression of the relief that's experienced because of Babylon's destruction. The king's destruction and therefore by implication the whole nation. And there's a lovely bit here where even the trees join in. Because even the trees have experienced the oppression of Babylon in that they were cut down. But now there's relief, even for the trees. You know, we're getting this picture of not only relief and rest for the people, but for the land. Now the second stanza in verses 9 to 11, this is interesting because now we go down to the place of the dead, Sheol. And here there is a surprise that this is where the king of Babylon has ended up. 
It's as if uh, to say that you know, Sheol thought, we thought you were immortal, O king of Babylon. You know, as if they were taken in by the pomp and hubris of this king. We didn't expect to see you here. But actually here you are with everybody else. All the other dead. The third stanza in verses 12 to 15, here is exploring the sheer heights from which the king has fallen. Obviously, the king imagined himself up there with the gods in heaven, and therefore his fall is even more striking. Now, just as a, a brief aside here, some people think this text, verses 12 to 15, are about the fall of Satan of how he was a good angel who fell from heaven and became evil. And that's what it describes. Now, of course, if you don't know the book of Isaiah and someone takes you to this verse and you know, if that's what they say, well, what do you do? But since we are reading through the whole book of Isaiah, we can see that this is not about Satan. This is about the humanity who considers himself up there in the heavens up there with the gods. It's a picture of hubris and pride. And therefore, the fall is huge, or the perceived fall is huge, from the heights of heaven to the depths of Sheol. It's, it's the fall we're talking about. Utter hubris to the depths of the earth. And then the last stanza in verses 16 to 21 is really is about really the disgrace of this nation that it ends with this king who is not even given a proper burial and there are no descendants. This dynasty ends. It's finished. With that fall, it's come to an end and the whole nation. Okay. Now, the bit of Isaiah that we're in, where we've just started today in verse 13, Isaiah 13, is actually one of the most recognisable units in the book of Isaiah, simply because we have this long string of oracles. So chapter 13 began with the oracle concerning Babylon, and then uh, uh, later in chapter um, 14, 15, you then get the oracle concerning Philistia, and then the oracle concerning Moab. If you flick through, we've got quite a few chapters of these different oracles against different nations. It's quite recognisable as a kind of a unit. But in our section, we've got this little puzzle at the end of chapter 14. Because if you look in verses 24 to 27 of chapter 14, we've got this bit about Assyria. Now, in many ways, we were expecting Assyria from the beginning because they're the presenting threat to Israel. But if you look closely, it's not even a full-blown oracle against Assyria. It doesn't say that, uh, that it's an oracle against Assyria. I mean, the editors of the Bible have put it in for us, an oracle concerning Assyria, but it doesn't actually say that, does it? It does for the other nations, but here it looks like the Assyria bit has just been added on to the end of Babylon. 
It doesn't seem to be there in its own right. And it's this that provides the clue as to how it all fits together. It would appear that Babylon is being used here symbolically. Symbolically to represent the nations of the world that have this posture of arrogance and pride towards God. There are a number of factors that lead to this conclusion. Babylon is available to be used in this way. Back in Genesis 11, Babylon's origins are established as a city that's making a name for itself, or trying to make a name for itself, that's independent of God. The scope of the language that's used to talk about Babylon here in Isaiah is fairly wide-ranging, universal, indeed, in scope. If you glance down to 13 verse 11, it says, I will punish the world for its evil. It makes sense of the historical context in Isaiah that Assyria is the current threat and not Babylon. The Babylon is not yet the superpower that it will one day be. It will be another hundred years or so until Babylon rises up and becomes a threat. And the symbolic use of Babylon certainly fits with the rest of scripture. You know, from our recent studies in the book of Revelation, Babylon is used symbolically of that which has this posture of pride towards God. And therefore, what we've got with the mention of Assyria, well, it's like this is what happens to Babylon, and Assyria is a concrete example of that in this particular phase of redemptive history. In other words, it is one oracle that's given in its most general form regarding Babylon and then made explicit at the end who it applies to in this particular case. And so you don't need a separate oracle for Assyria at the end. So the oracle against Babylon is symbolic of what will happen to all nations and in particular Assyria. That's what's going on here. It's one oracle that starts off symbolic and then connects to the concrete reality of Assyria. One of the things about Proverbs is that they summarise that which has been observed. You look at the world from a biblical perspective and these are some of the observations that can be drawn. And there are lots of examples out there, and then patterns are observed, and these are then condensed into pithy sayings, boiled down into proverbs. And I take it, therefore, that what we have here in Isaiah is part of that biblical data that informs our understanding of pride coming before a fall. That Babylon was proud, and it fell. The attempt to usurp God and claim independence from him ultimately will not prevail, but will end in destruction. There's a warning here of humanity's posture towards God, of a posture that's proud and arrogant. 
But the second part of the proverb is connected to the first. Because remember, the proverb came as a pair. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. Now here, it doesn't go further than commending the lowly of spirit as an alternative to pride. But yet a few chapters on in Proverbs, we get Proverbs chapter 18, verse 12, which says this. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honour. And now this second idea is a bit more well-formed and recognisable. Because pride comes before destruction, so humility comes before honour. And here in Isaiah, we see a concrete example of that. Israel, who suffered the oppression of Babylon, when Babylon is laid low, Israel is lifted up. The tables are turned. Babylon is destroyed. Israel is honoured. Or, in more familiar language, the judgment of Babylon leads to the salvation and restoration of Israel. The humble are those who trust in God, who serve him, and are lifted up and restored to him. And this comes as an encouragement to have this posture of humility and service of God. And indeed, the oracles were written for Israel's benefit. You know, it's interesting, the nations never heard these words, or if they did, it was only second-hand. It was Israel who heard them firsthand. Isaiah is not saying to the nations, this is what's going to happen to you, but he's saying to Israel, this is what's going to happen to the nations. That they would rightly relate to God. That they wouldn't make an alliance with them and so collude in their pride, but rather trust God and serve him. It's precisely because the proud will fall that they would not make an alliance with them, but humble themselves and so be lifted up. Now we will say a little bit more about this in the Lord's Supper or just before, because Jesus effectively quotes the proverb in the context of the coming kingdom of God. But for now, I take it that one of the things about the Proverbs, but, sorry, but for now, I take it that one of the things about the Proverbs is that they're so memorable. They're helpful because they condense what's been observed. But the danger is, is that they can be so far removed from what's been observed, they become no more than trite, moralistic morsels. And what we've seen this morning is that behind the proverb stands a wealth of biblical truth that places this proverb in a theological setting that concerns not only the judgment of God, but that judgment is precisely the means that he will bring about the salvation of God.
Let me pray, and I'll open it up to any questions that you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account of the destruction of Babylon. And we thank you how it informs our understanding of how your world works. That you will not let those who um, are, pri- are full of pride and arrogant towards you to prevail, but that you will bring them low. And we thank you that you do that not only because that's right and proper, but also uh, as the means in which that you will lift up your people and restore them to their proper place in your creation. We pray this will inform um, our understanding of the Proverbs, in particular this proverb. We thank you for how memorable they are and pray that we would learn to, when we think of these Proverbs, that they would uh, be warnings and instructive to us, but in their proper context, um, in their relation to you. And we ask that we would relate rightly to you as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is now your opportunity, if you would like to ask a question, to clarify anything, or anything in the text you wanted to know a bit more about. Thank you. Yes. Um, thanks, Aidan. Quick, quick question. Um, you mentioned Babylon is being used symbolically. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to confirm. So we're thinking that this is not at all about Babylon, the nation that will rise, but it's only symbolic of nations that have this posture of arrogance. Does okay. It's so just for the recording. Um, talks about Babylon being significant. Does that mean that this is only about symbolic Babylon, but nothing about the historical Babylon, which will rise up? Or could it be both symbolic and about um, the historical Babylon, which is yet to come? So I think the second, insofar as um, if it's symbolic, then it's fairly wide-ranging. I mean, it's almost proverbial in the sense that it's 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 a general. Um, it's any nation that behaves like Babylon. This is this is their this is their fate. 
So I take it then that the historical Babylon becomes a, a bit like Assyria, becomes a concrete example of the that which is symbolic. I mean, the only thing I suppose would be is in your second case. Um, I mean, this again, this is what the, you know, the commentator brings out: is that Babylon just isn't really on the scene. I mean, you guys will know about Babylon because we know that after the Assyrians come, it's Babylon that defeats the Assyrians. They become the superpower, and they're the ones that take um, Judah into exile. Um, so it's Assyria, which destroys. You know, so the kingdom divides, uh, Israel divides. Basically, it's Assyria that defeats the northern kingdom, but then Babylon rises up and defeats the southern kingdom. So we kind of know that, and that's all coming. But at this point, I don't know, you know, the commentators thinking, like, we don't kind of jump there too soon, because Babylon isn't, isn't, that, isn't that threat at the moment. So in that sense, maybe with the first readers maybe would be slightly forced by the historical context to be thinking this is symbolic. But then because it's symbolic, actually, all the nations that fit into that, into that category, you know, it becomes um, paradigmatic for, for all nations, including the historical Babylon. Is that, yeah. Susie. Yeah, no, I, I get you. So for the recording, chapter 14, verses 1 to 2, talks about the restoration of Israel. Is that symbolic? Is that historic? What kind of period is that talking about? That kind of question. So I think because it's related to Babylon, I think it, it's in, included in, in, in the first instance, this exploration symbolically of, of what's going on. And I think it's, I mean, it's also interesting because you've got the... Um, Israel are then given this taunt to say, and then you kind of think, did they actually say that taunt? You know, is that I, can you think of a place where that has actually said? But then you kind of think, actually, is Isaiah more helping us to see the significance of the fall of Babylon in terms of it means the restoration of Israel? So in a similar way, let me come back to it, when we get to the book of Revelation and we see Babylon's downfall, the next thing is a new heaven and a new earth in terms of the significance is, is that the judgment of God's enemies, the ones who are oppressing the people of God, their fall means the 
the exalting and the lifting up of those um, who are oppressed. So in that sense, I'm not sure here to what extent Israel's thinking, Israel's necessarily, Isaiah's necessarily thinking, I'm, I'm thinking of something specific in the future rather than exploring or helping us to tease out the implications of what is Babylon's fall is. Because it's not simply, we haven't just got this, maybe I'll put it like this, we haven't simply got this picture of God and every time a nation, um, you know, uh, uh, exalts itself and tries to make a name for itself, God just squashes the nation. And you're just going, you know, God's the God that just goes around squashing nations when they become too full of themselves. What we have is a God who has a plan of redemption. And basically these nations which are exalting themselves are contesting God's rule and his kingdom. So what's going to happen is he's eventually going to establish his kingdom and that will necessarily mean all the other kingdoms get squashed. Um, and so in that sense, it's a, I think that's what's, I think that's where Isaiah is going on. He's not simply just saying that, but this is why I think the pair of Proverbs is very interesting, is that you don't just have, and not interesting, you know we say, I mean, if you've heard, um, pride comes before a fall, people tend not to say the other one. What would that be? Um, honour comes, no, um, humility becomes before honour. That isn't the kind of, what we say. But I think the fact that they, they come as a pair helps us to see the relationship between one and the other. And I think that's what's been explored here. I mean, in many ways, it will be played out in history, Susie. So in terms of Babylon will fall, that will mean that Israel returns to the land. But obviously then that's not the end. And then, it, you know, it, we go on to the fulfillment of Christ. Does that? Yeah. So... I think I think the, the the symbolicness is slightly more proverbial, and that's why it took us to the proverbs to help us to understand the more general ideas of which then will be played out in historical contexts, and then finally the final historical context, which will bring about the defeat of all human kingdoms, and then the establishment of a new heavens and new earth. That's all. Cool. Time for more? In our Trinity tradition of three? But it's not always. I'm looking forward to showing you how Jesus then quotes this proverb and applies that to the coming kingdom of God. But you have to wait until after the next song for that. Okay, have to leave it there. Right, we're going to sing. Uh, in a moment, we're going to. Um, I'll introduce the Lord's Supper, and then we can share that together. But before we do that, we're going to sing. Uh, come and see. <laughs>